I like to think about interfaces as having lots of interesting moments, uh, magic moments, if you will. We might create um, six or eight variations on an experience. And the reason you get those two dialogue boxes, which I like to call idiot boxes, is because the, the interesting moments weren't paid attention to. All right, well, thanks everyone for coming to Zerf Soapbox. Uh, we have just a couple of uh, reminders for the next couple of events we have coming up. We have Luke W. stopping by June 18th. Uh, Ooh, Luke. Chief designer and architect designer at Yahoo and good friend of Bill Scott. He'll be stopping by talking. Um, he'll be giving the same talk he gave at the event apart a little bit ago on designing for smartphones. That's coming up June 18th. And uh, July 9th, we have Mace Bolt of Bolton Peters. Hmm. User research guru conducted hundreds and hundreds of user research studies for Oracle, for Electronic Arts, for Sony, HP, many, many different companies. He'll be stopping by to talk about user research, remote user research, July 9th. So if you guys haven't signed up for the Zerfsobox email reminder, we have a piece of paper right there on Amanda's desk, uh, this big desk here. Just put your name and email, and uh, we'll shoot that email reminder to you for the next event. So we're, we're stoked to have Bill Scott here, Bill Scott of uh, Yahoo, where he curated the Yahoo Pattern Library, which if you guys have not uh, checked out, I certainly suggest you do. It's an awesome resource for any designer or person that's trying to solve a problem with a pattern. Bill Scott of Netflix, of course, which you know all of us love and love the user experience and we use it's every day. I know I just emailed oh, oh. and no just help. sent my DVD <laughs> back the other day and uh, looking forward to my next one. And uh, Did you keep it a long time? Huh? Did you keep it a long time? Just uh, about a week maybe. Okay. No. Just a month. <laughs> the people who keep it a month pay for the service so you know that. Yeah, I kept ah. Oh, there you go. Thank there you very you much. <laughs> You're part okay, of I'll try and do it. Part my of the grandmother uses it and she's 86 years old and she streams <laughs> movies on it. So that's great. If a UI is as simple and wow. killer to use as that, I mean, wh what other website? That, she she only uses Netflix. I think she knows Google, but and she doesn't. She only streams the foreign movies on it. So Bill Scott of Mebo Pro just recently joined Mebo, where he is new challenges uh, facing new challenges there, uh, getting their uh, plugin for the browser going and. Uh, Getting the IM aggregator going as well. Mebo is, as you guys know, is one of the world's largest IM aggregators. Launched in 2005 and uh, open source as well. So, and if that's not enough, designing for web interfaces book that he yep. co-authored with uh, the recent year. Give Eagle, a couple away. Yeah. An amazing, amazing resource for anybody. I'm still trying to I'm sink step my back teeth here. into it. I was just talking to him earlier here. about it. It has lots of tools, techniques. Um, how to diagnose an interface and find little faults with it. Um, his, his grid, his interesting moments grid is in there, which we'll probably touch up on, up on today. Great book, uh, kind of book you probably keep uh, chained to your desk there because people would probably want to use it and 
it's, it's amazing, amazing. Um, so he's going to take his 25 years of uh, experience. So, so you, can, you can tell he, he does marketing, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. I, I feel like I've been marketed. Yeah, Bill great. Thank you, Dimitri. Take his 25 years of, of experience. So 25 yeah, basically, years. 25 minutes, one minute per year. Well, year when I was first, yeah. when I was born. No. <laughs> he, uh, he's going to touch upon some Netflix. Uh, how does how do designers and engineers work on a team together? How do you make decisions with that team? Yeah. How do you raise morale without trying to raise morale? How do you design by analytics versus designing by principle? Yep. How do you stay relentlessly simple? How do you, by adding features into interface, how do you stay simple with that interface? How do you kill features from an interface? All these things are super important to create that awesome user experience, such as Netflix and other websites and web apps. So with that, let's welcome Bill Scott. Is there so right. Thank you. So I have a few slides, but I, I don't really even care if I get through the slides. Uh, it's basically just to have a conversation. Uh, I th one of the things, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, um, I like to think about interfaces as having lots of interesting moments, uh, magic moments, if you will. Uh, you can think of the user, <coughs> user experience as a user illusion. You know, it's basically you're trying to create some kind of magic. You're, you're turning... Um, just these bits into something that looks like the real world, you know. And we see it more now with the iPad and other devices, you know, and uh, natural interfaces and touch interfaces. We can we can see that evolution happening, you know, uh, where where things feel much more natural. We probably have all seen the cat playing the iPad YouTube video, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, so you know, Fitzky uh, is an author of magic books back in the 1940s. And uh, Bruce Tognazzini actually had an, an article back in the 90s on magic, and he quotes Fitzky a lot, and I actually got the trilogy recently, which is pretty interesting. And uh, he says magic is both in the details and in the performance, and I think that ties directly in with user experience, right? Uh, uh, there's all, all, obviously a lot to do with overall flow and information architecture. Uh, I tend to focus a lot on the interaction design because uh, I think that seems to be missed a lot. So... Um, you know, you take something like this simple iGoogle example where you're just doing a drag and drop. It looks pretty simple. And when I was at Yahoo, we were crafting the Yahoo user interface library, the YUI library. And uh, my role in, in that was to think through drag and drop as a, the first thing because it was probably the harder thing to, to get in the toolkit. And uh, think about it from a design perspective and also from an engineering perspective, what would we put in the toolkit? And so I found myself cataloging a lot, writing lots of notes and 20, 30 pages, and I said, this is kind of silly. I could probably use some design skills in this and actually, you know, put it into some kind of a grid, which I did. Because if you start looking at the interaction, there's a, there's a lot of events, you know, for a drag and drop. And I think that's just what uh, a lot of people don't maybe consider when they get into these things. They think they're simple interactions. There's also a lot of actors that get involved. You know, if you think about the events, even what you can do in the page loads or, you know, if you drag back over the home area that you started in, I mean, these are all just little subtle things that, that show up in a drag drop. And you can do things with the drag object, the ghost, and et cetera. And if you, this is really a terrible, uh, I should probably use white. There's actually a grid here. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, you can see faintly there's a grid. You know, the, the colors aren't showing up too well. So there's basically the events are running along this way and the actors are running this way. If you actually chart an interaction like that, you can see there's like, in this case, there's like 96 interesting moments. And there are moments in time during an interaction that you can choose to engage or not engage. You just take that simple iGoogle example, uh, you know, 
you can see it graphed into this uh, this matrix, this interaction matrix. Uh, in fact, I called it the interaction matrix. One of the guys on the team, Eric Moralia, uh, came up with a sexier name, Interesting Moments Grid, which I, I liked, and I told him, can I steal that? And he said, yes, you may use that. So I give Eric credit <coughs> where I can. Um, so, you know, you could choose to, for example, why do they just have the arrow here? You know, what? Could it be a grabby hand, you know, things like that. Probably because nobody thought of it. Probably because it just happened by default, you know. Uh, it wasn't considered, you know. So it's just little stuff. Uh, and if you look at the evolution of iGoogle, their drag drop, it was really, really bad to begin with. It's, it's pretty good now. It's decent. But it, first it was like everything wiggled around the page and jumped around. And uh, you end up with, what happens is you end up, I'll skip that, uh, you end up with, with being able, if you're not careful, you can break those magic moments. This is TurboTax, and uh, there's a $10,000, 533 tax bill. And if you change something, watch what happens to those numbers. It's about to happen now. 10,000 jumps to 98,000 and back down. If you look at it in slow motion, you'll see it here. And it was just kind of like biggest loser. <laughs> it's kind of like the biggest loser thing happening here. 16,000, 98,000, 33,000, 53,000, 31,000. Know, so you choose to engage with a user in a way like this, which is kind of kind of flaky, right? And uh, Intuit's had this for a few years now on, on the uh, TurboTax product. And uh, I don't know why, because it doesn't really help you. It gives me heart attacks. Every time I'm doing taxes, my taxes <laughs> go up to 98000 uh, Oh, my God. Oh, it actually did it go down? Oh, it went down. Oh, I should be celebrating. But I don't have any indication of that, right? So uh, just so these are the kind of th things I like to ask. And with the pattern library and the anti-patterns and stuff, it's really kind of to tease out these sort of things. This is another old, old example from Yahoo Photos where you're dragging and dropping photos into an album. The album doesn't light up, so you get a dialogue box, and you get Dancing Hamsters, and then you get another dialogue box, right? And the reason you get those two dialogue boxes, which I like to call idiot boxes, is because the, the interesting moments weren't paid attention to. You, when you drag over the album, you could light the album up, right? You could have a number beside the album, how many things are in the album, and it changes when you drop it in, or you could do any number of things. If you put it in a grid, for example, you don't have to, but if you put it in a grid, you'd be able to see that, oh, well, I could interact here. Instead, they had a rent-a-design problem at Yahoo for the photos team. They were just around the corner from me. At the time, they didn't have anybody that was full-time dedicated to it. They kept different people being cycled in. Uh, this is about when Flickr was bought, and so there was some debate about how much to invest in it and such, and we had some really great engineers working on it who have since gone to Flickr, and so they had this pent-up ability but then they, they task them to do stuff like those, those idiot boxes and, and things. Uh, so, uh, and then you've got this amazing plethora of, of interfaces out there that get excited about animations, animated menus and things that slide. Instead of me actually looking at paint, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with, with animated menus. And, uh, you know, I think we, I've been championing that we get rid of all animated menus, uh, animated drop-downs, uh, that they should be legal on the web, right? Uh, because they just don't, they don't really add anything. Uh, and then uh, this is NASA.gov, which is still doing the same thing where you have the drop-downs. And if you go fast enough, I've been able to get three drop-downs <laughs> open at the same time. So I, if you can beat me and get four, send me an email. Um, but, and then this one is really weird. This is like uh, Barnes & Nobles. And when you uh, get the, the actual pop-up, you get this light box effect. But if you'll notice in a second, and also you get the hover and cover problem where you cover everything up, 
It's not a carousel. It's actually a conveyor belt. It moves at a certain speed. You can't speed it up. You can only change the direction of it. You can only stop it. It's kind of like watching the, the old Lucy uh, episode in slow motion, right? <laughs> Nothing actually falls off the conveyor belt, though, in this case. So, you know, this is how you can, you can break that delicate balance, and these are a bunch of anti-patterns. But uh, uh, I think I'll just stop it there <clears throat> um, and, and uh, maybe discuss a little bit <clears throat> about Netflix, and then we can open it for questions. Um, at, uh, when I went to Netflix, one of the reasons I went there was I was always an Alan Cooper kind of, Fan, not totally in Alan Cooper's camp. I don't believe that that you can design just totally by, you know, fiat. But I liked his approach on patterns and principles, and uh, and I knew that going to Netflix would be a great balance for me because of uh, the eight strong A/B testing culture uh, and the, the quantitative. So uh, I went there with that in mind, and I did did learn a lot about that. And uh, what was what was interesting to me at Netflix was just seeing. How simple and dumb we had to make it, you know. And this is just typical of a, of a large uh, site that has a ton of video games. Yes, that's all right. Um, this is when you you think, why did, I, why did I make that ringtone? That you know, that's, that's when you have that thought, right? Um, so so at Netflix, you know, it was like some of the things we learned uh, in the last few years, especially the site was. And site still has got some really bad design elements. The donkey teeth we call them the tab, the tab menus. Everybody in the design team calls them the donkey teeth, because we've wanted to change those tabs since the day I got there, and it just seems to always get prioritized down and never, never quite makes it. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Those little, those little yellow tabs. If you don't go check the Netflix site, you'll see, and you'll see why we call them donkey teeth. Um, but, we, but what really moved the needle the most was getting rid of text on the page. We used to have a lot of synopsis around each one of the, of the movies. Uh, getting, making box shots larger, uh, making things more visual. Uh, uh, putting transparency in the site was a huge thing that actually... What would often happen is we would make a change, A-B testing-wise, and from an A-B testing perspective, we might... We might create um, six or eight variations on an experience, and then uh, uh, against the control. And and we what we'd see at the end of that, after a month or two months, whatever, is that okay? Well, it lifted uh, queue ads, which is consumption, adding to the queue, adding DVDs or adding movies to the queue, or watching something. It, it raised consumption, but it only would do it on this page we did it on, not overall, right? So you go well. It's a local lift, and yeah, that's that's. It's not bad. It's made this page probably better, but overall it didn't really help the site. And that's actually pretty common. You know, when you're in that real down the tail trying to fine-tune stuff, you'll find that out that people only have so much appetite, you know, and how do you actually increase their appetite to consume more? Well, if people only have so many hours in a week, they're not going to consume more. So there's only so much you can do for that. Um, we tried some experiments that were interesting um, around that tried to do a few different things. Let me just bop out of this and... Pop down at the bottom. It helps to see a few things. Uh, let's see, probably this guy here. Yeah. And then, okay. um, so this was uh, <clears throat> rate and replace. And if you say not interested or you rate something, it actually takes and puts another movie in, in play, you know, in, in the spot. And uh, we knew we wanted to make the site more interactive, 
because it, it had been more, you know, it had interactivity around the little pop-up and other stuff, but not really that interactive around recommendations. We to make recommendations much more dynamic. So we added this and, and put it in test. And what we would what we would do at Netflix a lot is uh, make sure that uh, we put a lot of new members through it. And because there's a lot of new members signing up all the time, you could have a pretty good flow of new members going through an experience. So the goal was to raise taste input without hurting consumption. Taste input being you know rating, um, saying that you like something, because you know, taste input is more than just star rating. But in this case, star rating. And by raising taste input, what happens is you can feed more information into the recommendation engine, and the recommendation engine can then give you some more smarter choices for movies, which can then can raise consumption over time, right? Which then, if you raise consumption, consumption is a proxy for retention. Retention being whether you stay as a member or not, and you'll stay as a member if you're finding value out of the service. That's kind of the whole value proposition of Netflix in a, in a nutshell. So new members. So what happened? Do you think that that was good for taste input? I think it was okay for it, good, bad. It was good. It was actually really good. It raised taste input. However, it retention dropped. People canceled membership, and uh, consumption dropped. Now, they didn't drop it because we had this feature. I mean, that they saw the feature and go, oh, I hate Netflix, I'm going to quit. It's this whole thing of there's only a certain amount of time that a user has to do something to understand the value of service. So a new member coming in, they have a two-week trial. They don't know much about Netflix. They get in there and go, ooh, I rated a movie. Oh, it's cool. They sit there and do that. And then lunch time's over or the coffee break's over or it's time to eat. And they go away and they get distracted. And their lives don't revolve around Netflix. It's just a site they visit. You know, they're trying the service out. It doesn't cost anything anyway. It's a free, free trial. And two weeks run up and they go, well, I didn't get much value out of that. I mean, I could go rate some more movies. I mean, they don't say that, but that's kind of what's happening, right? So they end up canceling. And uh, so what we ended up having to do was actually put it in a different place in the site in an actual rate movie site. Because we knew it was effective. It worked, right? It did increase taste input, but it didn't actually help consumption and therefore retention, you know, members finding value. So by putting the same experience over in a different area where existing members got to it, and, you know, hindsight's like, duh, you know, it's pretty obvious, right? But that's where all the testing sort of ends up being is, you know, it's like totally obvious once you... Hopefully it is. <laughs> it's not always, but hopefully it is. And this this was really one of the few things that raised taste input, raised consumption, and increased retention, uh, which was actually pretty amazing. The other big one was transparency. Just putting text uh, on, near a recommendation or a row of recommendations that actually said, here's why we're recommending this movie, based on your interest in this or whatever. And what that did was, and it was our theory, our hypothesis when we came up with that was uh, that if we can increase trust, uh, then you know people will, um, will, you know they will they will take the recommendation as something they'll really follow. You know, it's just a, the, the trusted friend. One thing Netflix never did well, has never done well, and probably will never do well is community social. Um, so uh, this is kind of the algorithmic approach. You can think of Netflix as being kind of the uh, the Google of movies, right? Because it's really the engine and everything else is really fueled around uh, five or six core sets of algorithms that, that figure out which movies to watch. So uh, what what feels like this human de delight and touch is just a cold, hard set of servers in the cloud now moving out to Amazon services. So I hate to...
pop your bubble, but no. <laughs> a lot of love is put into that. There, we actually have Todd Yellen. Uh, I say we. Uh, they have Todd Yellen, who's the product manager. Uh, he used to be a filmmaker. He's the head of product management, and they've got some great product managers there. And Todd is just a total love for films, and uh, a number of the people there have a huge, huge love for films. So, you know, they really uh, look at what's being recommended and debug that and understand that. The other big thing that Netflix has been working on that's been really, the other one that really moved the needle a lot is uh, similar to what Pandora did with the Music Genome Project. If you're familiar with Pandora, you know, they have people who actually uh, take music apart and, and it's constituent parts and, in essence, tag music, right? So Netflix started as, you know, is totally algorithmic, right? Um, and, and based on, like, similars and movies on some core, you know, coarse kind of values. And then they begin to hire people down in Beverly Hills to uh, tag movies, micro-tag movies. And by micro-tagging, that's why you get, if you go to the site, you'll get, like, uh, period pieces from the 18th century that have a quirky ending for people like you, you know, like that. Uh, because all these little micro-tags get kind of stuck together. And, of course, you want to be careful and not have, like, you know, erotic movies for three-year-olds, you know. Uh, hopefully there's not any of this. But, you know, we, had, we actually had to debug stuff like that because things would get put together in weird ways, and the way things were tagged and related, you get some really odd combinations. So we had to go through and, and make sure things wouldn't, wouldn't come up that would be kind of embarrassing. Nothing quite that. That was our extreme example, just to, to call it out. Um, so, so, so being able to, to micro-tag, it's a form of personalization because now we can say, we can figure out by based on the movies you've watched, we can come up with this micro-genre or this uh, alternate genre or this personalized genre. And we did that. We got lots and lots of tweets of people saying, wow, Netflix really knows me. And they would, they would quote whatever their homepage was showing in the row, you know, from a micro-tag perspective. Uh, again, just a cold, hard algorithm. No. Uh, uh, but a lot of love was put into to tagging those movies to get that information. So that was another strong thing. I think those are the, you know, I think in the last three years, I think those are the, some of the main drivers that probably did the most to, on the site. So I'll stop talking now. Yeah, we, we started five minutes late. Yeah, so I want to open up for questions. And Designing by analytics versus principle? Yeah. So what happened in Netflix was it was totally on the downhill skier shaving off the microseconds or the milliseconds. You know, that's the whole, you know, you're trying to get faster and faster versus, say, uh, an X Games kind of uh, play. As soon as the TV came into play, that changed the game because you, you could, you're now in a totally different space. So that opened the door for us to bring in a lot more qualitative research, a lot more usability studies, and a lot more of um, prototyping. Uh, before that, they didn't really see any value in prototyping. They didn't see any value in usability much in usability. It was only a few years ago when when uh, uh, Gib had come in to head up product management that they actually did, even did any market research, usability research under the market uh, marketing team. So up to that point, it was engineers that knew they didn't understand design, so they leaned on A-B testing to get them where they, they get. And they had some good hunches, and they had the people who came on some good hunches. But So the balance between the two happened, started to happen in Netflix by having a wholly different, totally different space that you don't know what to do with to balance that. Uh, I still think they lean more on the, they're definitely, it's very strong in the A-B testing world because a lot of people think Netflix is better than it is. That's what I always would say because they, they get a movie recommended to them. They like the movie. They have a great experience with the movie. And so they transfer that love back to the site. 
And if you can find a service, you can create a service like that, it's golden, right? Because, uh, you know, all you've got to really do is get out of the way. But isn't that really kind of the truth that, you know, great experiences really are mostly about mostly getting out of the way? Okay, another question. Yeah. What's the cycle between knowing the initial data and seeing the secondary data, say what the first data is going to make sense? Is that something that you're looking for? Yeah, we look look for and we would look for it usually within a few weeks we'd have enough data to know if a test was kind of giving us weird results or not. Did you, were you set up to look for secondary streams of data? I mean, were you thinking, oh, we've got this to test, this to test, and this to test after we put this in there? Is there a stream of tests that yeah, it would. Usually what happened was there was a hypothesis. So there were a number of different approaches to test out that hypothesis. You know, like transparency, you know, will create trust, and trust will, you know, create people accepting recommendations and watching stuff they like. Um, so that that found its form in lots of different ways, right? So if that test didn't work, we still had the hypothesis we were trying to work out. And so we would try something. Usually we had several things in mind to try, and they were queued up. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, and what types of data are we using to support your decision-making? So you've got oh. raw data, analytics. You're talking about the metrics custom itself. Metrics, customer service. So what, what, oh, what so, so on, the, on, the mem- on the member side, nothing around, in, hardly anything around engagement or impressions or anything you typically know of. Mm-hmm. It was all around uh, consumption. Uh, consumption being adding movies to the queue, or watching a movie, or adding, adding instant movie to the queue, and there was a formula around trying to tease out what that meant. Consumption, consumption is a proxy for retention because if you look at Netflix structure, it's around acquisition on the non-member side, and it's around retention on the member side, and it's and you got to keep your cost down. So those are the main drivers. So how you you measure retention? You measure it through consumption. The old shipping model. You couldn't, you couldn't wait for a ship to happen, and you couldn't detect if somebody played in a DVD player. So you had to kind of back up stream to get to the queue ad, and that was the data. That was the metrics we looked at. Was How long did you have that vision structure that was kind of keeping the place? Because when a startup you know, starts a business, they don't, Well, you know, Netflix know is 10 years old, 11 years old, so it was before me. Okay. I don't know when they actually set those in place, you know. Because they didn't initially weren't even a, subscri- a subscription model; they were, you know, rent one at a time model in the, at the very beginning. And, and you mentioned that you keep the kind of the world successful, but how often did the customer service or the customer component of it actually influence any of the? Yeah. So, so when you looked on the customer side, you know, the support, uh-huh. you know, we looked at those issues, and those would feed in. Uh, you couldn't, at the end of the day, you really couldn't do harm. You didn't, you, you were not allowed to do harm to retention. I mean, that was something in, in churn, those sort of things were the hard numbers you just didn't want to violate. So you could do something to satisfy customer support needs, but it had to be something that didn't also just detract from the main, you know, experience of watching movies and enjoying movies. So you were willing to increase customer service costs if they increase retention. Yeah. Slightly, yes. And, and the thing is, though, Netflix, I think even this last year, was number one or number two right behind Amazon. They've been number one for like seven years in a row in the customer service satisfaction. And uh, uh, a lot of that just has to do with, uh, I think the move away from phone was a great move, even though people thought that was silly. I mean, move away from email to phone uh, because they put a personal touch to it. 
and uh, emails really kind of crappy to get an answer back in. And they were real careful about monitoring wait times. We, we published the wait time on, on the site. So whenever you were going to do a call, it says average wait time is one minute or one and a half minutes or two minutes. There was a little, uh, a little number there that a token you could copy, you could quote back to the person until we got a better system that made it a lot faster when you got online. And that was something that when we said they'd work with Vikram, you'd work with Vikram. That was some of the stuff that Vikram did, yeah, when he was there. Other? Okay, we got probably ten more questions. Yeah, a couple more questions. Yeah. Yeah, you talked about the dragon teeth, the tabs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Were there any usability issues to that? Uh, you know, not really. So it was more of a, and that's why we never really worried about it much, uh, ex except that, we wanted to create a better visual style overall for the Netflix site. One of the things we had attention with that we went back and forth on was how consistent to make everything because when you're A-B testing, you're changing stuff all the time. And so one part of the site, like you notice this is dark here, right? And the other part's not. And that was to kind of call it out visually. At some point, you end up with a Frankenstein site. And uh, so we, we actually had a lot of conversations about that. We didn't have any good answers to it. Just that, uh, you know, but, but yeah, the, the, the tabs work. I mean, people get the tabs. And we were always, like, actually removing tabs. You know, we did tests where we got rid of most of the tabs. So it, it was really more from a visual. Mm -hmm. And it also, because you, if you think about the TV and branding, you know, going across the TV, you can create elements that look, if you don't have this donkey teeth tabbing, you can have something that kind of creates the same kind of branding across. So it's only more that, that line. Other questions? Yeah, you have to understand it, but don't let it limit you, right? Uh, that's that's the trick. Um, so as long as you don't get limited by it, the problem if you turn into whether you're a designer and you start implementing something, you immediately lose the focus of of all. You know, you, you start worrying about what you've created. You know, the love for it and and all the constraints that you have. But uh, I think it's really I, what I think is really important between UX and engineering, front end engineering especially. Is a, is a shared understanding. And that shared understanding can take lots of forms. You know, it could be documentation if your teams are across the water, you know, uh, remote or whatever. Or it could be something live and living like a prototype. Or it could be hallway conversations. And so it's important to get design literacy into the engineering team and engineering literacy in the design team. So a lot of the work of getting the two teams to work together is vocabulary being common. That's one of the things that I enjoyed about the pattern library. Uh, was to me the pattern library was not so much about the practice itself. The release of the pattern library was the fact that Yahoo did it, was the fact that it, it stated that you could have a vocabulary or that design engineering could share, and that it called attention to some things that people weren't, weren't noticing were are happening on the web and they needed to think about more carefully. That was kind of my, my thoughts on it. Um, so things like patterns and all this, those are all good kind of techniques to get teams to, to rally around and work together. But uh, 
I look for hybrid folks, usually on teams where they have, at least some people on the team have some hybrid skills. And if they don't have hybrid skills, I work to try to figure out how they can uh, get a deep appreciation for what the other side's doing. I mean, I've seen over and over that companies where uh, there was a breakdown. I remember at Travelocity, there was a breakdown. I was talking to the teams, and uh, the problem was the engineering team did in JSP and Java, and the design team was... Uh, Part of the team was putting together HTML and CSS, and they'd throw it over the wall, and they told me, and then they cut it up. And I said, well, what does cut it up mean? And they couldn't explain it. I said, there's your problem. I said, okay, let's get the, let's get the two teams together, and let's walk you through what they're doing, and let's see if there's some ways that we can cut this whole crazy process out. And they did, and it made a, made a difference, you know. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I think is important, two teams working together. That's a tough one. Because, um, you know, because I've got this design lenses project that I've been working on, which is basically taking other fields of study. And almost any other field of study uh, that you can do to bring into uh, the, the cross-discipline is important. So it almost doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's something that exercises a different part of the creative brain that you bring to the table, whether it's music, whether it's art or psychology or whatever. In fact... If I said there was one, then everybody would look like that and you'd have a crappy team, right? Because everybody wouldn't bring different things to the table. So I think it's really, really important to have that kind of, you know, cross-pollination uh, from different experiences. I find that to be really fun and invigorating when you've got a team of people who have totally different backgrounds, you know. Uh, and me, my bias, you know, I would say have some the skills to abstract things because coming from a software engineering background, that's why you see patterns, you see my book, it, it's, it's, it's a reductionist approach. I take a very reductionist approach to design, which is not the best, always the best way to do it. But I'm a, kind of a captive of my, of my thinking, and I kind of catch myself going down that way. Uh, it's, you know, my thing. Probably have time. I'd like to thank you for coming. Yeah. It's been awesome to have you. Yes, it was good to be here. Yeah.